electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. Welcome to The Exchange, and here's what's ahead this hour. All eyes are on Powell as the Fed chair gets set to testify in the next hour. Investors are weighing his words of continued support against some committee members' desire to move sooner on tightening. We're going to speak with the committee chair of today's hearing in just a moment. Plus, what one economist says is the number one thing the Fed could do that would be a complete disaster for markets and for the economy. And Bitcoin just turned positive on the session a moment ago. It's been fluctuating in the past few minutes between positive and negative territory. And it's still down more than 50% from its all-time high set just eight weeks ago. Will it ever get back up to those levels? That's all ahead today. But we start with the markets, and Dom Chu is here with the pre-Powell setup. Dom? Uh, The pre-Powell setup is very stable right now, but I get to put a gold star next to one part of the market for the first time in quite some time for the NASDAQ, at least. I'm going to put the gold star right here because we did hit a fresh intraday record high for the NASDAQ composite, up one half of 1%. So the near-term outperformance continues. And by the way, the S&P holding just about steady above that 4,200 mark, up about another 14 points, and the Dow just about flat on the day, all ahead of that big Fed testimony from Jay Powell in, in front of that House subcommittee on the coronavirus pandemic. So again, a bit of a holding pattern for the Dow. We'll see what happens here. You mentioned before some of the parts of the market that are moving a little bit more these days. Retail, certainly a huge focus for many traders and investors because of Amazon Prime Day. It's driving a lot of activity with regard to online shopping. And we already saw some of the stats. It could be the biggest online shopping day of the year. So keep an eye on some of those names that we're talking about, like Amazon, also Etsy, some of the other names like Home Depot, Lowe's. The entire complex is doing relatively well at this hour. And then, of course, you mentioned what happened with Bitcoin prices. We hit just about 28,000 850 or thereabouts, depending on the kind of metric you're looking at. Remember, there's no consolidated tape for cryptocurrencies. But look at that intraday move here. 28,850 was just around 10 a.m. Eastern time. We are now up roughly, call it 12%, give or take or so, from the intraday low so far. So if some folks out there have been trying to figure out where a bounce zone could be, it's that, just call it 29,000 mark, at least for the near term. We'll see if that holds. But again, remember, 64,000 odd. That was what it was per coin at the high. So yes, a big move lower here. We'll see if this holds, Cal. Back over to you. Okay, Dom. Thank you, Dom Chu. In less than an hour, Fed Chair Jerome Powell will testify in the Fed's response to the pandemic. It's before the House Select Subcommittee on the Coronavirus Crisis. In his pre-release testimony, he details the unprecedented stimulus programs and lending tools the Fed has deployed and paints a mostly rosy picture of the recovery, though he mentions two warts, the labor market and inflation. Joining me now to expand on all of this and give us perhaps a preview of what we might expect in the next hour or so is Congressman James Clyburn. He's the House Majority Whip and Chair of that House Select Committee. It's a pleasure to have you here, sir. Our own Elon Moy is here as well. And before, Chair, I, I dive into this interview, Elon, we just kind of expand on what Dom said a moment ago. What is the market's expectation? You know, if we go back to when uh, Bernanke was on the Hill in 2013-2014 and he kicked off the taper tantrum, it was his reference to maybe moving rates in the next few meetings. Is Powell expected to offer any kind of color like that? 
Well, Kelly, you're right. I mean, this is the first time investors are going to get to hear from Powell since that FOMC meeting last week and the press conference. And he's pretty much going to be sticking to script, at least in his prepared testimony, in which he says that inflation is notable but does remain transitory. And perhaps he learned something from former chair Ben Bernanke because he doesn't mention interest rates or even asset purchases at all in his prepared remarks. Instead, he really just tries to paint that picture of an economy that's strengthening, a labor market that's uh, still healing. He points to two potential risks, though, including a slowing pace of vaccinations as well as possible new strains of the virus. But generally, his message here is that the Fed will support the recovery until it's complete. All right. So, Chair Clyburn, let me turn to you. Would you agree with that picture that the Chair Powell is about to paint? From your constituents in particular, what are their top concerns about the economy and what the Fed's been doing? Well, thank you very much for having me. I think the big thing is whether or not the economy is going to sustain its current growth. Uh, we see uh, unemployment going down. Uh, people are back uh, doing things that they used to do. We are back to where uh, what we might call normal. But I think the people are pretty upbeat, and they are really concerned as to whether or not it will sustain itself. Now, down where I'm from, we see a slight tick up uh, in the uh, in the infection rates. Uh, but uh, there is concern uh, as to whether or not uh, this new variant uh, will uh, be a problem for us. Uh, but other than that, people are going about their business uh, in a way that um, makes me hopeful. Are they worried about inflation? Do you hear concern uh, about higher prices? Do you hear about uh, the housing market in particular? Well, I don't think the people are worrying about that. I know there are a lot of news reports about it. Uh, I've talked to Chairman Powell about it. He's not particularly concerned about it. He thinks uh, that what is taking place was to be expected. People are rushing back into uh, into business, and therefore uh, we'll see a tick up. But he's made it very clear that he has the tools uh, to control uh, any kind of inflationary problem uh, that might take place. One more question on this. Everyone's been watching the labor market. Do you think the jobless benefits are a big contributor to why we're seeing so many worker shortages and businesses feeling like they're competing against the government to find help? No, I don't think so. I've talked to a lot of very small businesses that tell me that they are having some challenges with people coming back to work. But the challenges have got to do with people not being able to take care of their children. And a lot of people who are in transition because of their uh, their parents and grandparents. Uh, so the biggest problem I see uh, is that people would love to go back to work if they would have the child, kind of child care that we need. That's why it's so important uh, that we look at what President Biden is proposing. Uh, he's talking about his family plan in addition to his job plan. And that's what's important if we are going to sustain uh, the economy once it comes back. Still, it would seem the biggest child care component is schools, right? I mean, and we've watched and listened to the messaging, especially from the unions that control a lot of the public sector schools, who last year were adamant that it wasn't safe enough to reopen and now are changing and trying to insist we're going to be open, we're going to be ready. Um, are they? And, and, and what are people supposed to do if they're not at the ready? I mean, I can't imagine there's anywhere in the country where they'd still be contemplating not going back to school full time. And if that's the case, would child care still be holding people back from joining the, the workforce? By the time uh, we go back to school, schools are pretty much closed now. Um, I don't know about all over the country, but I know 
my grandchildren uh, are out of school. They don't expect to go back to the latter part of August. And I would hope that by that time, we will have the rescue plan, not the rescue plan, but the family plan uh, to complement the rescue plan uh, so that we can have uh, kids back in school and parents uh, being able to afford uh, the child care that they need. Chairman Clyburn, this is Elon in D.C. here. You know, you've been really vocal about the need for the Fed to understand what's happening in uh, minority communities, in low-income communities, as this recovery continues. How do you think that should factor into their decision-making as they consider when to raise rates or reduce their support for the economy? It should be primary. Uh, I've made that very clear to Chairman Powell. Uh, and I'm very convinced uh, in my discussions with him uh, that he is very aware of this. He's very sensitive uh, to this issue. And I have full faith and confidence that he's going to do right by the, uh, this part of our economy. And Chair Kleinburn, if I can switch gears here and kind of shift from monetary policy to more of what is happening or not happening on the fiscal side. As we get into June here, should we expect there to be major initiatives coming out of this Congress under this president? You know, we're starting to eye the midterms. We're looking whether it's voting rights, whether it's infrastructure, whether it's more stimulus. I mean, you've mentioned a couple key uh, goals of the Biden administration, but so far there's nothing much to show for them. Well, I think that uh, Joe Biden made it very clear during the campaign that he would do everything he possibly could to reach out to the other side and try to do things in a bipartisan way. And he's doing that. Uh, it's not, uh, well, you know, he's already gotten authorization, uh, at least have been told uh, by uh, the powers of be, uh, that he can uh, come with another uh, reconciliation package. He'd rather not do that. And so he's working to try uh, to keep from having uh, to go Democrats only. But he's not crazy. He's not going to allow recalcitrance uh, on the part of Republicans to keep him from getting his agenda done. So he's given them a lot of time, given them room, and I would hope that they would do something uh, this or next week uh, so that we can have a bipartisan bill. But we're going to have a bill. So if it's not bipartisan, uh, Democrats will go along. But, Chairman, you are also the majority whip. You count the votes in the House. Are there the Democratic votes to get something done, especially on infrastructure, especially if it doesn't include things like addressing the caps on state and local income tax deductions? Well, the state and local income tax deductions, I think that uh, we may do something with that. That's not the biggest thing uh, with the House side. We are going to pass a bill in the House. No question about that. Uh, I'm not an expert on the Senate. I don't know what they will do over there, but we will have an infrastructure bill that will pass the House. Uh, DeFazio will be putting that bill on the floor uh, very soon, and we're going to pass it. Are you going to be able to meet the Speaker's deadline of getting something done by July 4th? I don't know about that. Uh, you know, once again, uh, the House is on a different timetable than the Senate, and a lot of times when I'm speaking about the House, people apply to the full Congress. So I'm not going to deal with deadlines. All I'm going to say, when DeFazio brings that bill forward, we will get the votes. Well, Congressman James Clyburn, thank you for joining us today uh, in advance of this hearing. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me.
Elon, thank you very much as well. Our Elon Moy reporting on Capitol Hill for us. In the meantime, my next guest says it's too soon to raise rates and doing so could lead to a deflationary disaster. Stephen Rusciuto says the Fed hawks are a vocal minority for now, but that any policy change prioritizing inflation over jobs is a mistake with tens of millions still collecting unemployment benefits. He joins me now. He's the chief U.S. economist at Mizuho Americas. Stephen, it's great to have you here. So I would say at a time when most people's concern has been running the other way about inflation, the Fed is behind the curve, home prices are out of control, stock markets are too frothy. Your concern has largely been the other way, and maybe the bond moves over the past week have validated that. Do you think Powell needs to claw back a little bit of the hawkish ground uh, he's given up here? Well, he hasn't given up anything. And I think, you know, when you even see the commentary that came from Bullard and Kaplan earlier this week and even Mester's comments today, you know, they themselves have walked back from the rhetoric that was interpreted uh, or applied to them back um, last week. I, I think what the Fed's doing is, is, you know, in their discussions, they talk about the gray fine points between their views. And basically, I think all members of the committee are committed to a reactive policy approach. But I think when they talk about, some of them talk about we should begin the discussion of talking about tapering, the market sees things in black and white. It sees things in binary. Mm. You know, the switch is either on or the switch is either off. And if the Fed is either easing or the Fed is tightening and that's it, and they immediately interpret one for the other, and that's exactly what happened. And the market read what the Fed said because the Fed mistakenly didn't may pay attention to the way the market would read it. And again, Mester pointed that out today, that the Fed has to be cautious when they speak to make sure they don't add unnecessarily to market volatility. And unfortunately, they did that. Um, what I think the chairman will do today is stick directly to the party line. And the party line that came out of the latest FOMC meeting was an almost completely unchanged policy statement. And therefore, nothing has really changed in the mindset of this committee. And I think the chairman's going to toe that line very, very carefully. I think he's yeah. learned that lesson that a lot of other members of the committee have not. So let me go back to your big warning, which is that if they're too proactive or if they kind of jump the gun here on tightening, they're going to risk deflation, which, again, are the kind of warnings that have, seem to have been borne out in the bond market over the past week. The flip side is if they don't do anything, if they're too reactive, People will argue that's also going to usher in deflation. Why? Because you're going to have a spike higher in asset prices, a spike higher in home prices, the kinds of unsustainable spikes that could themselves engender collapse and deflation, kind of like what we saw during the financial crisis itself. Maybe not the same plumbing contributing to it, but isn't there some sense in leaning against especially these price spikes before they sort of take off and become uh, too much of a problem to clean up on the other side? Let's understand what happened in the financial crisis was a long developing balance sheet deterioration led by speculation in the housing market. The transitions that's taking place in the housing market right now is not speculation. People are not buying homes to flip them. People are buying homes because they're transitioning from either a city dwelling to a, a suburban dwelling or from a suburban dwelling to a more rural dwelling because the ability to work from home has increased the housing opportunity for a large section of the population. That's going to have implications for home pricing. And that's not speculative. That doesn't lead to a bubble. Not yet, and but what if it starts to? You know, if people see these price increases enough, aren't they going to? And I see this in our area already. I know friends who are saying, you know what? Investing in real estate right now looks pretty good. I could buy properties in other states. Look, I could get the rental income. I get the home price appreciation. That's. I just wonder if it, if it morphs into something sure. like that. 
However, if the banking industry makes the same mistake it would made back during the financial crisis of allowing these purchases to take place with zero down or to some cases 120%, 120% loan to value, yes, you start getting into those situations. But if people are going to go out and put 20% down on a home, on a rental property and deal with a commercial mortgage, which is not as aggressive as a residential mortgage, which they would have to do under the current banking rules, you then get into a situation where you dramatically have already dampened the ability to speculate. Dodd-Frank has worked the miracle or Dodd-Frank has worked the way it was supposed to work to avoid those problems from happening, which is why when we went into the COVID-19 lockdown, when the Federal Reserve threw all the stimulus onto ring fence banks, the interesting thing is it was never needed because banks have enormous amount of capital. They have very low non-performing loans. They have a lot of reserves against their non-performing loans because they're not making that speculative type of loans yeah. that they were making that led to the financial crisis. This, again, is people looking at the previous cycle and assuming nothing's been done to change it. And a lot's been done to change the reaction of the markets to it. And we're so early on in this cycle that talking about a speculative bubble in housing is a big mistake. All right. Steve Rusciuto, we appreciate it very much. And again, for those trying to understand the bond market, I think your warnings helped to, uh, to explain a lot of the sentiment that's playing out there across the curve. We appreciate you joining Steve Rusciuto uh, on the Fed. We will be hearing from Chair Powell at the top of the hour. In the meantime, we have a news alert out of the bond market. The two-year notes went up for auction. Rick Santelli, they're pretty sensitive to the Fed moves. How'd it go? Well, I don't know if they're sensitive to the Fed moves or not. As the Fed walks everything back, I still see a two-year note at 23 and a half basis points. But nonetheless, 60 billion new bouncing baby two years hit the street at a yield of 0.249, a whisker under one quarter of 1%. The grade of this auction was a C, very average, C for Charlie. And if you look at all the internals, pretty much they're very close to the 10 auction average. I will underscore indirect bidders was a little on the light side, and we all know those may be foreign buyers. If there's anything about this auction that, that should stick in our minds, it's that the short maturities, Kelly, you're referring to that are normally most sensitive haven't mean reverted like the longer dated or some of the spreads already have started to move back. And I think that's very important to keep an eye on. And the point being, Rick, that that's kind of why we're getting this flattening of the yield curve. You have higher yields on the short end, maybe lower yields uh, longer out as we've digested what's happened with the Fed over the past week. I don't know if you heard everything that Steve Rusciuto just said, but it's I'm just curious what your response would be to those. Uh, and again, to the bond market itself, which seems to be making the case that the Fed can be undergoing a major policy mistake by tightening too quickly here. Yeah, I think by tightening too quickly, the Fed would be doing actually the right thing. Uh, and I, I find it interesting that as they walk it back, the market goes right back. What does that tell us? I think that tells us many important things. You know, do over, do over. Forget we ever said it. I don't know. I think a taper is important. I think the dot plots uh, don't really matter, but they definitely grab the whole of the marketplace to some extent. And I think some of what we saw in Treasuries was a capitulation of the yield curve trade. I don't see anything about deflation. You could read the markets any way you want. It's a Rorschach to many. But to me, it's a reversal of a global steepening trade. And I think the short end will remain really sticky for a while because I think even though the Fed's walking this back, I think the numbers globally are going to get too big to walk it back. Maybe we're doing the best at reopening, but others are starting to bite at our heels, which is a good thing. And I think that some of these price 
prices that have eased back like lumber and some of these commodities, don't hold your breath for them to stay there. And consider the year over year, two year over year are still very firm, even though the knee jerk reaction of the reopening may have distorted some of those numbers. Yeah, well, and to, to your point, a little less enthusiasm for that auction of two year notes today at these yields. Rick, thank you very, very much, as always. Rick Santelli out in Chicago today. Coming up, the ETF tracking retail, the XRT. Get this, it's on pace for its fifth straight quarter of gains. Now, that's its longest winning streak since 2010. One analyst says the pandemic led to a historic shift from services to goods. What lasting impact will that have on retailers? We'll explore. Plus, Bitcoin staging a bounce back today after briefly turning negative on the year and breaking below 30,000 for the first time since January. Look at that climb back into positive territory today. We're going to look at the collapse from the highs back in April and what it all means for the stock market. We're back in a moment. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. I want to bring you these headlines from San Francisco Fed President Mary Daly. She is saying the threshold the Fed set last December for tapering or reducing its $120 billion in monthly asset purchases is, in her words, quote, within our line of sight. I think it's possible we could even get there sometime late this year, early next year. That's the end quote. Daly also adding, we are not there yet, but it is appropriate to start preparing for the time that we would hit that threshold. So pretty interesting. You could almost say pointed remarks from the San Francisco Fed president there. All of this in anticipation of Chair Powell himself uh, speaking to Congress at the top of the hour in a week in which they've largely tried to you might say walk back some of the hawkishness markets read from the dot plots and other parts of the Fed's decision last week. That kind of leads us into this next discussion. We've been seeing a meltdown in things like Bitcoin, the SPACs, the meme stocks, all as we approach the mid-year mark, and especially after last week's decision. Bitcoin is down 43% in the past three months. The CBC SPAC index is down about 3%. Even the mighty meme stocks are not immune to the reversal in fortune, with AMC falling 10% in the past week. And my next guest says it's game over for them, and it's time to focus on fundamentals. Joining me now is Neil Hennessy. He's the chief market strategist and portfolio manager at Hennessy Fund. Neil, it's great to have you here. Maybe you can provide some clarity. What do you think is going on here? Is there a direct connection between some of the frothy blow off and what the Fed's up to? No, I don't think it has any connection there at all, Kelly. I think what you have is speculation in different parts of the market that's creating little bubbles here or there. But at some point in time, people are going to figure out value versus speculation in emotional trades. You look at, for instance, Bitcoin, emotional trade. What's behind it? I don't know. You can look at Tesla, emotional trade. What's behind it? Yeah, technology, but is it a real company going forward with all the competition that's coming in? You can look at the Mimi stocks that 
now I've clarified it. It's about me, me. Get me in. I'm too late. I have to be in on AMC. I got to be in on GameStop. And, but when you start to look at that and you compare it against value, and let me give you an example, something very, very boring as Casey's General Stores. They're general stores. They're convenience stores. They sell. They sold last year 19 million pizzas out of these 2,300 stores. They sold 62 slices of pizza out of these stores. They earn $8, and you can buy that company for 80 cents on the dollar. And then compare it to, say, uh, AMC, that you're going to pay $20 for a dollar in revenue compared to 80 cents for a dollar in revenue with a broken business plan, a company that's just raising money in the open market right now to stay alive, and they're losing money. So the, the, the concept of, of what's happening with Reddick and people getting in and out, they just don't understand the game. And that's the same with the SPACs. Or, or maybe you could say they're playing a different game. I think even some of the people involved would say, ah, I'm just kind of interested to take a flyer on it, see what happens. You, you know, in, in the sense that they know they're not doing what you're doing, but that they're part of almost this grassroots movement to maybe save these companies and see what happens. And anyway, before we go further down that line of speculation, let, let me kind of bring it back to one of the main debates in the market right now as it relates to inflation and so-called value stocks. What do you think is going on with inflation? Is it transitory or no? Is it affecting your investment decisions? Would you even go so far as to describe your investment style as value uh, versus growth or anything like that? Well, Hennessy funds is always value, uh, Kelly. But this inflationary headline that we continue to read about is temporary. And it's understandable. If you think about it, a year ago, a year and a half ago, essentially the economy stopped. Nobody went to work. And so essentially what has happened over that time frame of a year and a half, corporations have built their cash position to over $7 trillion. Individuals, as it's estimated, have over $2 trillion in their savings accounts in lower debt. But what happened is people got bored, as you well know and I well know, sure. so they started to do gardening. They started to do outdoor activities. And what people were working off was inventory they, because they didn't have anybody to make it because everybody was home. So, was short, so essentially, you just went through the inventory to the extent that, whoa, now we're getting people back to work here. Once more and more people come back to work, which is a, a direct benefit of maybe lowering the incentives when it comes to unemployment, uh, um, yeah. unemployment insurance or whatever you want to call it, uh, call it on a monthly basis. So I think it's temporary. I think uh, you're looking at lumber was temporary. It's come back. Uh, but until we get actually another six months into this where inventories start to build up, you're going to see this little inflationary bubble. All right. So you think it's it's sort of going to pass it. And I mentioned you mentioned Casey's General. We actually spoke to that CEO here recently. You mentioned Vista Outdoors, a, a pick of yours. KB Homes as well. Um, you know, that is kind of a secular growth story. So let me just go back to your your original point here. And for those who are in the tech stocks, we've seen this resurrection and growth over the past week or so, even over the past month or so, where all of a sudden, even the ETFs, the growth ETFs, if, if you want to call it that, are back to basically all-time highs. Do you think it's late in the game for those trades? Well, I'm not sure I really understand the question, Kelly, uh, 
But I think, like I said at the beginning, there's uh, little bubbles, uh, but they're little pockets. It's not the overall market. If you look at a 10-year treasury, the Dow Jones 30, those stocks yield more than that. So you're, you're looking at people went for growth. And when you're buying growth, you're buying something that might or might not happen in the future. When you buy in value, you're buying into a company that's undervalued, for instance, like a Casey's or a KB uh, or a Vista. What you're looking for, and, and, and you have to be patient. Uh, it's not as sexy as, as say, uh, Bitcoin. But I've been in this business 42 years, and I've learned things that are dull make you the most money. In other words, have you ever seen a going out of business sign on a coin operated laundromat? No. But how sexy is that story? It's not, but you make a lot of money doing it. Neil, this is why we love having you on. It is a pleasure. Thank you for your time, sir. The profit of common Thank sense, you, Neil Hennessy with Hennessy Funds today. Coming up, the little engine that could. After winning a battle for board seats at ExxonMobil, Engine One is getting set to launch its own ETF. Their ticker is Vote, and we have the details ahead. Plus, the planned factory that was once touted as the eighth wonder of the world, now it might be better described as the Foxconn fumble. Ahead of President Biden's planned visit to Wisconsin next week, we'll take you inside the incentive war and what this debacle means for other lawmakers looking to lure companies to their states. Stay with us. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to The Exchange. I'm Rahel Solomon, and here is your CNBC News update at this hour. The Federal Trade Commission will review Amazon's proposed purchase of the MGM movie studio and its library of films and TV programs. That's according to The Wall Street Journal, which notes that the commission's new chairwoman, Lena Khan, has been critical of Amazon's expansion. The FTC and the Justice Department have been splitting responsibilities for antitrust reviews, and the journal says that the FTC pushed for jurisdiction over the deal. The White House is formally acknowledging that the country will not meet President Biden's goal that 70 percent of adults get at least one COVID vaccination dose by July 4th. It says that it'll take several more weeks to get to 70 percent for people 18 to 30 years old. We set 70 percent of adults as our aspirational target. And we have met or exceeded it for most of the adult population. This is a remarkable achievement. When we began our vaccination campaign, we prioritized the most vulnerable. And it's clear from the numbers that this strategy has worked. More than 70 McDonald's locations in California are working with local health officials to provide shots in areas where vaccination rates have been low. Customers get a coupon for a free menu item along with their dose. And tonight on the news, an exclusive interview with the president of the Tokyo Olympic Games on how she's dealing with the big majority of people in the country who think that the games are too risky amid the pandemic. You're now up to date. Kelly, I'll send it back to you. Yep, it is coming up soon. Rahel, thank you so much. 
Meanwhile, let's take a look at the markets where look at the Dow. It's barely green today. It's only up 28 points, but the S&P 500 is up a third of percent. The Nasdaq is outperforming. It's up four tenths of one percent, and it actually hit a record intraday high. Its current level is around 14,200. Some of the movers today include GameStop in the green after selling five million additional shares and raising a billion dollars in capital. It's their second stock sale since becoming one of the most popular names on Reddit. Game is up 5% today. Peloton is up 7% after launching a corporate wellness program, Corporate Wellness Now. They're teaming up with the likes of Wayfair and Samsung. The stock is on track for its second straight monthly gain, still down more than 30% from its highs, adding 5.6% today. And Peloton President William Lynch will join Closing Bell around 3 p.m. Eastern time today for an exclusive interview. Finally, shares of Sally Beauty are up 12% after getting not one, but two upgrades to outperform. Cowan and Oppenheimer both saying their valuation makes the stock a good entry point. Cowan's sees 50% upside for SBH and the shares are up 12% today. You can find out more about their calls on cnbc.com pro. Now for years, states have tried to lure companies with lots of incentives. Remember the Amazon headquarters battle? But as Wisconsin is now learning, those incentives don't always pay off. Scott Cohn joins us now with more on the latest in this story. Scott? Hi, Kelly. Uh, welcome to the eighth wonder of the world. At least that's what President Trump and former President Trump and former Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker promised a few years ago for this site about 30 miles south of Milwaukee, a giant advanced manufacturing facility for the Taiwanese electronics maker Foxconn. Uh, now, they did get this nifty glass sphere built behind me, and they are doing some manufacturing here, contract manufacturers, servers currently, uh, but it's a far cry from what they were talking about initially with uh, giant video displays that they were going to build here. Take a look at the kind of the then and now. Uh, they originally planned to have some 13,000 high-tech manufacturing jobs here. That's now down to about 1,500 tops eventually. The state was willing to shell out nearly $3 billion in subsidies. That was a record. Uh, Governor Tony Evers, the current governor, his administration has negotiated that down to about 80 million, uh, although they already sunk a lot of costs for uh, infrastructure and land acquisition. But now they really are sort of rethinking the whole idea of those big, expensive subsidies. Our incentives are not only in um, monetary financial ways, but also in helping to make sure that the companies find the locations that they need, that they get the permitting that they need, all of those things to make sure that we're really business friendly. They, uh, in fact, in Wisconsin, have vastly improved, uh, in, increased the amount of grants that they give out. A lot of that, of course, is, uh, is CARES Act money. But, you know, in a typical year, they give out a couple hundred. Uh, now it's, in, it's tens of thousands of grants that they're talking about. All of this very important in our America's Top States for Business study. Coming back to CNBC very soon, we'll be looking at the cost of doing business incentives. That still looms large, but also what the states have been doing to try and help their businesses through that. You can read more about our upcoming study at topstates.cnbc.com. Kelly? Scott, thank you very much, our Scott Cohn. Bitcoin breaking below the key level of 30,000, but crypto investor Mike Novogratz says he's not nervous about the drop. Is he right? We have the latest coming up. Welcome back. What a session for Bitcoin today. It did reverse course, turning positive midday before dropping again. Earlier, it was below the 30,000 mark for the first time since January. It's lost nearly half of its value in just two months. And billionaire investor Mike Novogratz says, while it's painful, it's not time to panic yet. We'll see if it holds on the day. We might plunge below it for a while and, and, and close above it. If it's really breached, 25,000 is the next big level of support. Listen, I'm 
less happy than I was when we were at 60,000, but I'm not nervous. Well, the less confident are still getting out. According to CoinShares, Bitcoin has posted a sixth straight week of outflows. That's its longest such stretch since early 2018. For more on the crypto collapse, let's bring in Meltem Demir. She's chief strategy officer at CoinShares. Meltem, it's good to have you. You know, anecdotally, the people I know who are really big in the crypto space, when it first started selling off a month or six weeks ago, were saying, you know, everyone's out. It's over. They were basically like, this was this was fun. It was, you know, it was it's been a ride, but it's over now. They are just I'm not hearing anything like the bullishness uh, that was that really took place when this thing was really running up. I mean, it feels to me like they're sort of saying it's over. We've moved on. If you're still talking about Bitcoin, you're like, you know, so last year. I guess I'm so last year. Um, I just want to bring in, you know, I, I had this beautiful hat made on New Year's Day when Bitcoin hit 33K. We started the year here. Today, we're back here. So look, I think, yes, Bitcoin and the crypto space in general, we started the year at just under a trillion of market cap. We ran all the way up to 2.5 trillion in aggregate market cap. Now we're around 1.3, 1.4 trillion in total market cap. Bitcoin is flat for the year right now, but if we strip out Bitcoin and take the overall crypto market, we're up 200% for the year. And look, I think um, Bitcoin has always been volatile. This asset class is, is volatile. May, we saw a bunch of leverage coming off across the board. Now we're done deleveraging. Now we're seeing a lot of cash selling. Yeah. But I echo Mike's sentiments. You know, He was on earlier. We're not going anywhere. I'm still right here. Even if we go to 20K, you know, last March we were at 3K for Bitcoin. Well, but so I think we have to keep context in mind. Here's my point. We know you would be there, but is everybody else gone? You know, you know what I'm saying? I mean, and, and I know with institutions yeah. that they are on a very long, you know, time frame. So they are, the, and I, I think about the big insurers who are kind of just starting to dabble in this. And I think, you know what? Absolutely right. in the years ahead, we could still see more and more people putting a small percentage of their portfolios into this asset. I totally could see that. But the crypto universe is bigger than ever. So even if Bitcoin is a fixed supply, you have Ether to pick from and people like it for all these different reasons. You have different ones launching right. all the time with different you know, attributes and characteristics. What do you think is going to be the next big thing in this space? Where Even NFTs, we <laughs> talked about that market cooling off a few weeks ago. It was seeing nothing like the transactional value it did earlier in the year. So, so look, for me, it's it's very simple. Bitcoin is here to stay. It's not going anywhere. We're going through a contraction period. We had 200 days of market expansion, right? You can't have number go up forever. That doesn't happen in any market. What we're seeing is a correction, a contraction. And a lot of what's getting shaken out is what we call the paper hands, the weak hands. Um, there's a lot of retail that entered, didn't do the research, and is now selling. There are not a lot of long-term holders selling. If we look at on-chain activity. Uh, wallets that have been holding for a long time are actually using this opportunity to accumulate. I think we're going to continue to see consolidation here. There is a lot of macro uncertainty. Obviously, there's a lot of uncertainty around policy. There's also a lot of negative headlines. And I think part of this is just you know the, the cycle we go through every several years with crypto. But we are seeing a lot of new inflows. We are seeing a lot of activity in particular on the market side. I think there's some really exciting developments. Uh, the CME launched their micro Bitcoin futures contract. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, there's now the Ethereum futures and options contract. We continue to see growth in the crypto derivatives market. We continue to see connectivity between the crypto world and the traditional banking world. Mm -hmm. Two areas I'm spending a lot of time on and we're focused on at CoinShares, 
Number one, getting Bitcoin into retirement accounts. We're doing that in the United States with choice. And number two, um, getting Bitcoin into bank accounts via direct deposits so people can buy crypto with their paycheck. It's the future. It's here. I see the look at you're like, oh, oh I don't no, know. I'm like, this. why do we need that? People are clearly doing a great job of getting Bitcoin on there. Anyway, Melton, we will leave it there. A pleasure to have you on. I know we'll be talking to you again soon as we see you, whether we whether we take that dip below 25 Mike was talking about or not. Yeah, get, I'll, get I'll the be new, here. Get the new hats made. <laughs> Melton Demirs from CoinShares. Up next, from travel to home building to bulk groceries, J.P. Morgan is staying bullish on retail despite inflation concerns. The names that can not only withstand and rising prices, but can also pass them along to consumers are next. Welcome back, everybody. We've all heard about the post-pandemic spending surge with retail on pace for its best year in over a decade. J.P. Morgan sees this consumption shift from goods to services continuing. In a recent note, the bank names Academy Sports, Advanced Auto Parts and Target as retailers that can capitalize on increased spending while also passing on rising costs to consumers as inflation picks up. Joining me with more is Chris Horvers. He's Retail Hardlines Analyst at J.P. Morgan. Chris, it's good to have you. Just to make sure I'm clear about this, are you saying the transition is from goods to services or services to goods? Uh, Thanks for having us, Kelly. Uh, Goods to services. Last year, there was a $350 billion shift out of services, categories like apparel, categories like beauty, into goods. So my Home Depot and Lowe's benefited, my Wayfair benefited, my Williams-Sonoma Dicks benefited as well. You're starting to see that transition come back now. Goods was very strong earlier in the year, given the record stimulus that hit the consumer But as we sit here today, you're starting to see that shift back to services. Mm -hmm. And with more kids getting out of school, Northeast is this week, you're going to see more travel. You're going to see more spending on on areas outside of goods. I like how you talk about these companies like they're your children. (laughs) I'm sure it must feel that way sometimes. So if we're starting to see this peel off and go into services, which parts of your coverage universe can still do well? It's going to be really, really hard for Home Depot to have a year like it had last year. You know, who do you like here? And are the expectations still pretty high or have they fallen substantially? Yeah, I mean, we, we prefer Home Depot over Lowe's. Home Depot is a bigger pro-business. If you think about that share of wallet shift, a lot of that went to DIY. We're spending times in our backyards. We're buying patio furniture. We're buying fire pits. We're doing gardening that we never did before. Lowe's is a much bigger business. On the other hand, as you look ahead, it's going to be a tremendous back-to-school season. Last year, 71 of the largest 120 school districts in the U.S. went fully remote. That's not going to happen this year. There's going to be kids sports. Kids need to get need to get dressed. It's a very strong consumption environment and there's super lean inventories. So we see Academy Sports doing very well there. Also, if you think about Target, uh, Target is more discretionary mix than a Walmart. About 20 percent of sales are apparel, which is the press with lean inventories, which means pricing power. And you also have beauty being about 7% of the business. And and that part of the business, which should accelerate in the fall, is people need to get dressed to go back to school and back to work. And in Ulta, uh, which is 100% cosmetics, will fully benefit from that. And I think the key around inflation is when you have really lean inventories and really strong demand, the retailers have a lot of pricing power right now. Sure, and it's good for profit margins, like we've talked about, you know, that kind of operating leverage. So the five groups you split your coverage universe into, you're pretty bullish on most of them. The reopening plays like Ulta, uh, the, the COVID wallet winners you mentioned like Target, uh, the guilty and pro- until proven innocent ones like uh, Best Buy, the hybrid reopening plays like Costco and Walmart. But it does seem to me like you might be cautious on the likes 
of Lowe's, Williams-Sonoma, and even Home Depot because you, like you're saying, it's just going to be so hard to see whether they can continue to grow earnings. And we're, they were already seeing malaise in the last six months or so. Yeah, you're, you're seeing already that electronics business. We're all running out buying tablets and PCs because we're, we're stuck at home learning and, work, uh, and working from home last year. So you're already seeing that shift. You know, Best Buy, I think, has a tough setup into the back half of the year. Home Depot on a relative basis, uh, two lows. I think with the outdoor DIY business and, and home improvement showing signs of weakness, we think that's a canary in a coal mine. As you look into the back half of the year and you think about a Williams-Sonoma or a Wayfair or a Bed Bath & Beyond, which where you could see some of that, the home furnishing side slow down on a, on a lag basis and the durable side with the furniture business being the majority of, of revenues at a Williams-Sonoma. Yeah, so that might be the softer spot and what overall could be a pretty good environment still for a lot of these stocks, which is remarkable to even contemplate. Chris, thanks for your time today. We appreciate it. Thank you, Kelly. Chris Horvers with JP Morgan. Still ahead, engine number one, placing another bet on shareholder activism and ESG investing. We have those details next. Welcome back, everybody. Remember its success in that fight against Exxon, its upstart activist firm, Engine Number no. 1. Well, they're not stopping after that win. They're launching an ETF now. Pippa Stevens is here with this incredible story. Pippa. That's right, Kelly. So they're building on this huge success they had at Exxon, where they pushed the board. They got three candidates, three of their four members, onto the board in this huge shakeup on Wall Street. So now, fast forward a little bit of time, and they're launching an exchange-traded fund. So they're hoping that through shareholder voting, they can really exert change across Wall Street at some of the largest companies uh, in the U.S. So it's a passively managed fund with an activist bent, and that activist bent will come from the proxy voting and really taking a stand at all these companies. I'm, I'm impressed at the expense ratio. I mean, 0.05% is pretty good, but do we know it'll work? Because even with their success at Exxon, we don't yet know how the stock performance is going to bear out. Yeah, of course, it remains to be seen. The fund launches tomorrow under the ticker vote. So they really are aiming for a broad audience with that really low expense ratio. With the ETF, they're targeting retail investors across Wall Street. So they're really hoping to bring this activist targeted campaign to the masses. I give them credit for the concept because I have not, I can't think of another firm that says, well, we had a success as investors. Now we're launching an ETF on the back of that. So they continue their mavericky ways. Pippa, thank you. Our Pippa Stevens on that story today. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.